Hey, Pastor Adam here. Welcome to another episode of Talk About Anything. This week, our guest is Pastor Jack Coltis. He pastors Park Grove Christian Church in Lowry City, Missouri. It's a small town. He'll tell you it's about 650 people. There's another town nearby, about 400 people. I met Jack when he was working with my wife back before Angie was my wife. <clears throat> they were co-workers together at the same church in Seattle. He later worked with my brother at a different church in Seattle. And uh, so I have known him through other people for many years and uh, wanted to get his perspective on big uh, West Coast towns versus uh, rural middle America. Uh, we talk a lot about the difference between, you know, living out here on the West Coast versus uh, living in, in rural uh, Missouri. We also talk about racism and we talk about the rapture and the end times. And since uh, we're starting the book of the Revelation on Sunday mornings at Faith on Hill, uh, seemed like a good conversation to have. So a lot of different things. He does have a tendency to use some um, big theological words. And uh, I try where I can to say, hey, pause, let's talk about what that means. I didn't do that for everything. So if there was something he mentioned or that he was talking about that you had a question about, feel free to email me, adam at faithonhill.com, or just uh, get me after church or something, and we can talk about it. So uh, looking forward to this conversation with Pastor Jack Coltis from Park Grove Christian Church in Lowry City, Missouri, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. It's a long one, so if you need to break it up over a couple of days, no worries. <clears throat> yeah, we have three, outside of Sundays, uh, we have three podcasts that we do. We have this one, uh, we have starting points, which is basically just like an overview of sections and books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, we had some folks that were new to the faith and they wanted, you know, hey, how do I, how do I get started? So um, it's just kind of general overview stuff. And the 20 minute Bible study is exactly what it sounds like, but it's my solution to doing bigger books of the Bible. Um, mm -hmm. And we just finished Job and somebody in the church complained that it was too short because I did it in like six weeks. But it was, you know, 30,000 feet, you know, climate yeah. Bible study would would go through Job verse by verse. Yep, yep. But so so you're Jack Coltis. You pastor in the American Midwest. Where, where exactly are you at? So I currently pastor in um, a small country church uh, right in between two small Midwestern towns in Missouri, between Lowry City and deep water larry city has a population of about 650 or so people deep water has a population of about 500 and my church is smack dab in the country uh right in between the two of those yeah and, and which state uh missouri yeah okay i yeah. thought it was missouri but then there's like a part of me that's like not mississippi don't say mississippi yeah uh, <laughs> yeah don't worry that i used to make that mistake too until i actually got down here and i found out man Missourians get pretty upset when you say a few things. One, you confuse them with Mississippi, and two, you accuse them of being in the South. They're not okay with either of those. Interesting, because I would associate yeah. them as being in the South. Uh, well, and I think the reason we do is because of Samuel Clemens, you know, Mark Twain, and all of his Huckleberry Finn books and all those kinds of things. But, you know, because you got this whole story, you know, of you think of a Southern slave owner and Jim and the slave and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, truth be told, even during the Civil War, Missouri was not part of the South. They were part of that whole in-between. They didn't want to go North. They didn't want to go South. They were just kind of a neutral state, which meant there were a lot of Civil War battles here. But, yeah. yeah. But they're actually, they're actually very, very firm on we are not the South. And it's true because we're right next – we're in the same line with Kansas, Colorado, and all the rest of them. But then they would all agree Arkansas, which is below us, is definitely South. So, yeah. <laughs> It, I mean, I think it's funny, especially now, how we try to back out of each state tries to back out of a different way of how it was was or wasn't part of the Civil War. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because like Oregon will say that, oh, we were neutral, you know, we were this or that. But we redlined black people out of here. Uh, yeah. You know, like, yeah, we, we were we were a neutral state, but we were very, very clear that we did not want black people here. Yeah. Well, and I think let's just be frank. I mean, the cultural reality of America at that time was nothing like it was today. Even if you're an abolitionist state and a hardcore one, you know, there was still just a cultural prejudice that a lot of people had. And let's and let's be frank. That was the world at the time. And I'm not defending it. But that was just something that we all have to kind of deal with and, you know, kind of confront. I mean, our idea of equality is really kind of a new thing in a lot of ways, you know, as far as on a worldwide scale. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it goes both ways because I think American slavery and American racism was was somewhat at a different level. Like, you know, all all guys our age, all guys Mm -hmm. our age watched Gladiator. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And. And yep. so you could be a slave who became free. Yes, you know, yes. you could rise within the Roman system from slave to to person with with some comfort and, and position. Yep. Um, whereas and and that, that's why I mean I don't agree with the 1619 project. I think they have some real flaws in their in their basic premise. Yeah, but they aren't wrong that in 1619 America made the decision that like an Irish indentured servant, so a slave, an economic slave, yeah. that if an Irish slave was a person and a black slave was not a person or three, three fourths of a person. Yep. Yep. Well, and, and I think that even kind of touches on the criticism that often comes against, you know, Christians. Cause like, Oh, look at your Bible, you know, it promotes slavery and stuff. And yet people always, you know, compare that to American slavery and stuff. And, you know, this is like the work of us as pastors. We have to explain these were kind of two different cultures and two different things that were going on. I mean, yes, there were problems in both systems, but the American slavery, I mean, you can basically forbid it just from scripture. I mean, you weren't supposed to kidnap people according to the Bible and make them into slaves. And American slavery was all based on that. You know, uh, slavery in biblical times were not all race based and America was completely race based. I mean, so when you look at all that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, and I think that's even a cultural thing that we need to address as pastors, you know, when we're yeah, addressing yeah. this issue and criticism. And yeah. and the truth is, like, I mean, there's a certain irony that a large part of American conservative Christianity mm-hmm. is is quietly, secretly doing its part to end economic slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have friends who are, I mean, you, you were in Seattle. That's how we know each other is that you were in Seattle for a number of years. Yep. Uh, you know, God had you as a, this redneck pastor uh, in, in, in the heart of Seattle. Yes, and, it was an interesting time. <laughs> and, uh, and for people who don't know, like my wife and I talk about, and you actually worked with my wife, you were coworkers at the yes. same church. And uh, yep. Yep. we still talk about the Jack Coltus mobile, which was a, uh, was it a firebird or yeah, it, it was a white 1988 Firebird T-tops. I mean, just redneck hotness. It was there amazing. was carpet on the dashboard. I was the first time I'd seen that. Yes, yep, and yep. Uh, and and we still talk about it. And and I think the the thing is is that that was like, you know, your vibe in in Seattle um, was always amazing to me. But but what happens is we, um, I, th- I think a lot of times like we'll uh, we'll hear about these things from the past. And and then you don't realize that in today's society, economic slavery is real. Economic feudalism is very real. And I have friends who are in Seattle, well-heeled, upper, I mean, they're in that nebulous line. Are they upper middle class or are they like poor rich people? And uh, 
and they they're doing nothing you know i mean yes yeah, somebody's gonna say I, oh adam you don't know exactly what they're doing but i pretty sure generally speaking like they're doing very very little to help anyone they're just living very comfortable lives and mm-hmm. then there are churches that get labeled as you know whatever and and they're quietly keeping people out of homelessness they're quietly uh helping people to get out of economic basically economic slavery uh mm-hmm. Yeah. through discipleship, through programs, through housing. I mean, there's just so many things that are going on. Um, and I and I, I think it's it's important for the church not to like hype ourselves up, but to remind people of some of the realities that are happening today. Mm-hmm. Um, and also knock down some of our own like pride, you know, like yeah. my son this morning was talking about how good his class is. And mm-hmm. I, I was like, I've taught your class because I have my substitute's license. And I said, I've, I've subbed yeah. your class. You're not that good. Uh, and and I think sometimes like we have this thing like in Oregon it was like oh we're neutral well we're neutral because we we redlined the state you know and, and Grants Pass was a whites only town and you know yeah. there was a limited number of people that could live in Portland but only Portland it was just it was it, it, we aren't we aren't quite as like noble as as sometimes it makes us better to think of ourselves I mean even the abolitionists yeah. had all kinds of issues so. Well, and and I think that's just the reality of mankind. I mean, this is why I've often said it's like this is why, you know, especially for us as Christians, why legalism like uh, legalism, your way into salvation, however you want to say that earning salvation, earning relationship with God is something we could never do because we never recognize the sinfulness that is inherent within our own cultures that we just tolerate. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's like even today, I mean, I, I often wonder with how critical we are of the past and there's real things to criticize about the past. I mean, and we, we can't deny those things, but I often wonder like, what are our kids and grandkids going to be criticizing about our present, you know, and even us, like the oh, things that we are like, so ooh, we need to fight against this and that we're going to find out you know, maybe we were completely wrong on that, you know, and, and, and I think that's just kind of the nature of humanity. I mean, we're depraved, we're sinful. Um, you know, I mean, this is why it's like anytime you start studying your histories from the your heroes from the past, you always find out, man, these guys were a mess. And it's because they were, you know, and they had blind spots and we all have them. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, I, I know a guy who's really high up in the structures of power in King County. That's where Seattle is. Mm-hmm. And yep. um and he, he, a couple of years ago, he had a meeting and he's meeting with the head of the Washington NAACP, uh, National Organization of Women, you know, so on and so on, Urban League, all these different organizations. And they were all complaining to him, not, not knowing, you know, he's Christian or anything like that, but they just, you know, he's this guy. But they're complaining to him that younger activists were despising them. And they're mm-hmm. sitting there going like we, you know, the older ones are like, you know, we marched, yeah. we marched with Dr. King, even though they probably didn't. Uh, but, you know, we we marched with Dr. King yeah. or we we were there in the 80s fighting this and we were there in the 90s fighting for this. And they're already feeling the judgment of the next generation. It's not like you have to wait and say, like, what are my grandkids going to like despise us for? Yeah, they're, they're yeah. already feeling it now, yeah. which yeah. Uh, is amusing me to some extent. And I think there's a thing too. And this is something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, yeah. I, I, I uh, there were a couple of years ago, and it, it stood out to me partly because it was one of the few funny things I thought Trevor Noah did on the Daily Show, um, mm-hmm. which was a shame because I think he's a funny guy. But he had this he had this piece where a a, a middle school principal in somewhere in like West Texas was mm-hmm. fired because on their personal social media they had posted some really racist stuff. Okay, and they they played a clip 
where they were interviewing parents, you know, local news, you know, they're interviewing parents and they, they have this kind of, let's call him a Bubba type fella. You know, he's in a, he's in a pickup truck. He's got, you know, NASCAR t-shirt uh, and he's got, you know, the Bubba kind of uh, goatee going on. And they said, what do you think about this? And he's like, well, I reckon that, that, that ain't right. And uh, if somebody's saying hateful things, that shouldn't shouldn't be allowed in our school. And then it cuts back to Trevor Noah and he says, now here, I'm the one being prejudiced because I see how he looks and how he dresses and how he sounds. And I expect him to say something very different. Mm -hmm. And so we're out here, you know, Milwaukee is, uh, for your kind of reference, I always tell Seattle people that it's, it's to sh it's shoreline to Seattle. Like we can be in Portland in five minutes, city of, mm -hmm. you know, city of Milwaukee borders the city of Portland. And mm -hmm. I actually, because of the post office, I have a Portland address. Um, so we're, we are where urban and suburban and rural kind of all crash together. Cause 15 minutes east of me is rural, you know, everywhere surrounding me and definitely south of me is suburban. And then we've got urban in five minutes north. But West Coast, especially urban West Coast, has these views of the Midwest, of the South, um, that I, I would imagine you have you have found being there for the last you know seven eight years uh, mm -hmm. is is not what we think of here. So I'd like to hear you just kind of talk about you know what are the perceptions that um, that West Coast folks have of where you're at, yeah. what's right, what's wrong. Well, I mean, I first I think the first thing we all have to acknowledge is that we all have a cultural superiority complex where we think our culture is right and everybody who's different than ours is idiots. And we all love to live off of stereotypes. You know, I mean, let me just tell you right now, uh, first kind of starting, let, let me kind of explain kind of like the Midwestern rural. And this is just rural America in general. And I mean, real rural America. I mean, it's funny when I was in Seattle, I'd hear people talk about like Snohomish. Oh, that's rural. No, it's not. I mean, it's like you're literally like 20 minutes from a major city. You're not rural, you know, but, um, you know, but like in rural America, there's a saying that you'll see get thrown around sometimes called city -its. And it's every time we hear some city person talk about something going on in rural America that they know nothing about, you know. Yeah. And likewise, you know, you see that kind of prejudice in urban America against rural America. They're all a bunch of ignorant rednecks. We're obviously all a bunch of racists, you know, all that kind of stuff. When the truth is, when you actually sit down and talk with somebody one on one, you suddenly tend to find out. I mean, most people are generally on the same page when it comes to most topics, you know, especially like when it comes to the race issue, this and that. Like, I have never met somebody who thought, oh, we need to go back to slavery. You know, or we need to completely segregate out, you know, all the blacks and from the whites and all these kinds of things, you know. Um, now, OK, that being said, I, I do got to take a step back here. There is one crazy person I know who has talked like that. But I mean, but even with them, they're considered anomalies within our culture. They're not considered the norms. I mean, they're considered like, no, that person has no say in how we're going to do anything. You know what I mean? I mean, because yeah. we know the KKK exists, neo-Nazis exist, these people exist, you know, so we can't say they're not real. But generally, culturally, I mean, no, you're not going to run across that many kinds of people and this is also where it's been interesting for me um for example when i talk about racism uh in our church because i've preached on it a number of times you know because the topic does come up and generally what i find is people are more um afraid of what they don't understand or what they think is going on that's really not and when you actually address it and talk about it and bring it up you know I mean, suddenly people kind of calm down, but more, more of it I see as more kind of the whole rural urban divide than I really even see racial divides, to be frank.
Mm. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that where um, the the real, you know, oftentimes like the real divides in America are the unseen ones. We, you know, we talk about here in this area, we talk about invisible barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, like we have, we have uh, I-205 uh, cuts kind of down the middle of our school district. And there's east of 205 and west of 205. And they are very different. They're very different cultures. And mm-hmm. if we were to do like a multi-church event and have it be at a west of 205 church, we would get noticeably fewer people because east of 205 people don't like to come west. But west of 205 people are used to going east. Yeah. Uh, yep. It's things like that. And I think those that rural, urban, coastal versus, you know, flyover state um, yeah. Like the fact that the flyover state term even exists is a mm-hmm. uh, is is just indicative of of um, those kind of you know, those kind of realities. Yeah, you know, here's here's a funny thing too. Even when you're talking, you know, when we're talking about the racial side of things, you know, I am uh, I've been pastoring this church that I'm in now, Park Grove Christian Church. It'll be nine years in May. Mm-hmm. Um, after that point, after the 10 year or so, Mark, I'm going to be the longest tenured pastor that Park Grove has ever had in its history. And it was founded in ni- in 1866. So Ooh, you're older think- than us. Yeah, we're I know, right? We're 1876. <laughs> yeah. But now think about it. I mean, we're talking right at the end of the Civil War here you sure, know, when, this, sure. when this church started. And, you know, two pastors before me was actually a... Um, well, I can't I can't even necessarily call him an African-American guy because he's from Barbados, but he was he, he was a black guy from Barbados, yeah. you know, was a guy who had pastored Park Grove for uh, about five years, you know, in the uh, middle of the 2000s, about 2004 till I think about 2009, you know, yeah. and, and you kind of think about that, because if some people were to hear that, they would pr- that'd probably kind of blow their minds. It's like, well, how would that ever be accepted in a culture like yours? And it's because, I mean, generally speaking, people are afraid of what they don't know. But once they know a person, they don't care. You know, I mean, that, that's just kind of generally how that works in most cases, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of things where um, where a, a group is welcoming and at the same time, a group doesn't realize how it's being unwelcoming. Yeah. Um, so like uh, like our big divide in this area is is right versus left because yes. we have, yes. you know, we have because we sit at the at the crashing point of urban suburban and 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 city rural we'll call it city rural yeah. um you know because we sit at that crashing point you know we have people that come who are most people in our neighborhood are like you know moderate democrats and then there's the occasional extremely progressive person and then you have the the right wing person and they tend to gravitate towards church um, mm-hmm. and those kind of those kind of divides because you'll have a group that's really a church that's really welcoming and then, Oh, we love everybody. And then you realize, no, you're so either so far right or so far left that you don't realize how unwelcoming you are that you say yeah. everyone's welcome. But I know a church down the road that if a person walked in with, you know, like a, a, a mega hat, you know, it would be as if some, you know, somebody walked in with, you know, with can't, you know, radioactive or something. And the, and the same is true the other way. If somebody walks in with a Black Lives Matter shirt, you know, it's like, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Even. And uh and I think those kind of those kind of divides sometimes are bigger than than others. Um I mean there are real things like I mean uh you know statistically here in Portland we know like it's proven that black people are policed more than white people are. Um, mm-hmm. 
and and uh, pullover rates, that kind of thing. And they had a thing recently where the school said that um, a historically black high school was supposed to have its senior night for basketball. Mm-hmm. And the Portland Public School District said, for transportation reasons, we need to bus you over to this historically white school on your senior night. It's like, wait, what? You had the bus. Why, why can't you transport? There, there was some weird thing going on. And it was basically like, they don't want to go over to that neighborhood. And mm-hmm. uh, and those kind of things are are real and 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 something that's like a, a very valid thing. And I mm-hmm. think what we're struggling with is like how do we how do we thread the needle? Like how do we support how do we support first responders and law enforcement while at the same time acknowledging there's corrupt cops, there's bad cops, mm-hmm. uh, there's systems that are, you know, whole systems that are in place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and, yeah, you know, and when I think about that, too, you know, this is a very interesting conversation, especially when I'm trying to deal with the whole racism issues, Black Lives Matter, you know, of course, 2020, which was just a complete firestorm every which yeah. way you went, you know, when it came to racial stuff and everything else. And and, and, I, and I think this is also an area where people around here don't understand that when you have these large groups of, you know, mixed races and stuff, unfortunately, these things pop up. I mean, it's like around here, let's just be frank, we're white. I don't even know how many black uh, people live in our county. It's not that many. I mean, I'll say it's very, very, very few, you know. And I think a lot of people, when they see, you know, especially, uh, you know, African-Americans and stuff protesting racial injustice and all this kind of stuff, unfortunately, we don't recognize, no, there are injustices that take place. There are things that need to be addressed. And the reason why we don't see them as much around here is because, well, we're just not confronted with the issue as much. I mean, just to be frank. Sure. I mean, and so, yeah, you know, my, my wife's uh, Hispanic. And so like, Mm -hmm. there's stuff that I never really processed until we got together. And then it was like, Oh, when I go to return stuff at target, Mm -hmm. I get treated different. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then she does like, they just, Mm -hmm. I hand them the receipt. They barely look at it. They give me the, you know, the cash back or whatever. And she comes in with all her receipts and they're like really glancing over it really, you know, Oh, do you have this, you know? And I'm like, wait, that's different. You know, she got, um, she went to Walmart and she bought like some paper and and some school supplies kind of stuff. And they stopped her on the way out, right? Mm-hmm. And and the other a couple of weeks ago, I was I ran into Walmart quick, and I normally don't shop there after that because they like totally racially profiled her. But um, and they were unapologetic about it too because I called them out mm-hmm. on it. And uh, but I needed to go there. I needed something, and so I ran in. I wasn't thinking. I just walked out the door, holding the. I think I had a thing of parsley, mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm like three feet out the door. I was like, wait, I didn't pay for this. I walked back in. I was yeah. like, wait, why is it that like I got you know like nobody stopped me, nobody bothered yeah. to check, and and yeah. and I think there's something about those those differences you start to see. Like I've never been pulled over for no reason, but Angie has, you know. Yeah, and uh, she's you know there's times where she's. It's like, why was I pulled over? Well, she's a brown woman, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, it's funny because I can tell you right now, there's going to be people who are going to be hearing this from my side and they're just going to be like, oh, come on. And the reason I'm going to tell you that is because, shoot, I get checked at Walmart all the time. Yeah. Yeah, all the time. Like, sure. you know, we got huge checkout things. Every time we go out, it's like, man, I'm checked every other time. You know, for me, that's just part of life. So it's like, and and so I think experiential things right there, you know, also sometimes make these kind of conversations difficult, you know. Yeah, but, well, because we live in our experience. So if I haven't yeah. felt it, it's not real. Um, yeah. Or if if I haven't, like, you know, uh, people in real urban settings, um, like, did you, I saw this thing last night where um, 
one of the gals on the view mm-hmm. bl- blamed the people in East Palestine, Ohio. That's where that train derailment was. Yeah. And she said, it's your fault because you all voted for Trump. And, and I was like, wait, how is it these people's fault that yep. that they that they had a train with toxic chemicals derail uh, in their town? Like, it's not their fault. But that's like yep. a, you know, New York elitist West Coast or East Coast, but it's coastal kind of view of of the Midwest, of of rural America, of poor, you know, like, I mean, so it's the dirty secret of of liberal politics is that they largely abandoned poor whites that, that used to be part of their core base, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was why so much so many parts of of, cent- of kind of Central America turned red uh, mm-hmm. was because they were abandoned by, you know, by that establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually something when when Trump got elected, I was really curious, like, would would there be a reckoning about that abandonment? And and Trump Trump was such a um, a polarizing figure that they never had to deal with that abandonment uh, mm-hmm. because they could just blame him for everything. Uh, yeah, and uh, which which is which is what we all do. It's easier just to like caricature an enemy and blame them for all of our problems. Yeah, yeah. So now, uh, some we just started. This is a hard hard shift in conversation yeah that's just, fine <laughs> we just started uh the book of revelation last sunday mm-hmm. and uh you uh you and i were both part of the same group of churches for a while i grew mm-hmm. up in it you came into it for uh for a bit but we were both educated in their bible college system yeah. um and that group has a a significant core focus on the end times on the second coming of Jesus, on the on the rapture of the church, the premillennial rapture of the church, um, and and my my group of churches now that I'm in, historically, like they were like they they don't have there's like I think in our bylaws there's like a, maybe a paragraph written about Bible prophecy, the end times, um, and then just kind of like through osmosis, most of the previous generation of pastors would have affirmed a vague. Rap, premillennial rapture, literalist on revelation kind of position, just mm-hmm. because that was the popular teaching of their day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the, my, our generation of pastors now it's kind of scattered. And so there's no one way you, you have to view it. Um, but I am admittedly approaching revelation from a, you know, generally literal, except where it's obviously figurative, yeah. um, generally premillennial, I believe in the rapture point of view. Um, but you've, you've had a little bit of a shift in where you're at on that. And so I, I think it'd be good for folks in our churches. We're starting to work through revelation to kind of hear where you've been on it and where you, where you're at now. Yeah. Well, I, I think first, you know, just to be frank, I have not landed on any specific, you know, this is where I take things, you know, but I have done a shift away from a, uh, traditional dispensational pre-tribulational rapture position. Now, that being said, if somebody could argue me back into it, great, please do. I'd be happy to, you know. Sure. But um, and a lot of that comes down to, and like in our little dialogue we had, you know, on um uh the rapture of the saints, you brought up 
the point that like guys like Chuck Smith and many other pre-tribulational rapturous proponents uh, bring up is the whole idea, you know, from uh, what is it? First Thessalonians chapter four, um, when we have that whole passage about the rapture, the church being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, which, by the way, for anybody who's listening to this, who is a critic of rapture theology, generally, you know, they want to say there is no rapture of the church. Well, the problem is that is the rapture caught up. The Latin is raptura. It means to get caught up. The rapture is biblical. So I, I kind of get tired of critics of the rapture saying the Bible doesn't talk about rapture. Yes, it does. Sure. But now where I kind of have moved away from the traditional dispensational position is when they get into first Thessalonians chapter five, that uh, the church is going to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. You know, you know, you guys, you know, you build this kind of position where uh, Christ has taken our wrath. He received the full wrath for sin for the believer on the cross. And so it would be unjust for the Christian to go through the tribulation. And so God raptures them out of it. Okay. And, and I used to hold that for a long time. Anytime I defend the rapture, I mean, man, that's where I would land too, because it makes sense. But I, the question I started having was what about those who get saved during the tribulation? Mm -hmm. What about those who, after the rapture, you know, come to faith? And we know there are Christians saved during the tribulation time because we hear about these saints who get martyred by the Antichrist and all these sure. things. And the question I started having was, well, if we as Christians are being delivered from that time because Christ has, uh, you know, paid the full wrath that God had against us, you know, on the cross— what about these guys? What about these Christians? And I've mm -hmm. talked to a couple different theologians about it. I asked Thomas Ice about this one time when I was shuttling him back and forth um, between conferences. Uh, one time, my buddies on Remnant Radio, they were interviewing a guy about this, and I sent in a question, that very question. And the answers that I've got have always been incredibly unsatisfactory. It, it, it It's almost like suddenly they believe that God saves people in different ways. Suddenly, it's not the blood of Jesus is how all people are saved, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. But now it's suddenly, it's like, you know, because of dispensations, this is a different dispensation. And some of these guys I've asked to, they almost make it sound like, well, they deserve to go through this because they got saved late. And it's like, well, that's not how that works. And so that that's kind of why I've kind of moved away from a hard pre-tribulational rapture stance. Now, some people with this in mind hold to a pre-wrath uh, view of the rapture, where after the wrath of God is getting poured out on the world at that time, the church is raptured up right before that, and nobody gets saved during that time period. And I, And I don't know, I might lean that way, but I haven't you know, made it a full decision yet. I, so uh, before I get into that, I want to back yeah. up just because some, some folks, I want to be clear on terms. So dispensationalism is the, uh, is the doctrine that says that in different dispensations of time, um, God has worked in different ways. And they say, you know, there was uh, before Abraham, you know, there were obviously we, we know from the old Testament that there were people who were worshiping God uh, who were following God, but then God made a covenant with Abraham and started working primarily through his family. And then, you know, then through the kingdom of Israel. And then Jesus came along and founded the church. That's the new covenant. It's a new dispensation. Uh, so that's dispensationalism in a general sense. And there's different yeah. flavors and, you know, um, you know, kind of levels, I guess, of how extreme you are or what with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate Dr. Ice uh, because he's, so much of academia has just so little interest in in dealing with um in dealing with the end times uh that he's actually attempted to do 
an academic work on it. I appreciate his attempt just because just because so many academics are are lazy about it, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Um, but but I what I would say is is there's there's a few things either. So the pre wrath view says that there's a seven year tribulation period talked about in Daniel nine and sometime probably about halfway through. That's when the rapture happens and believers are taken. And then that's when the wrath at first, the first half of the tribulation is like, is just like general chaos. But the second half is when the wrath of God is poured out. And so we remove them. Mm-hmm. I, I can hang with them. I don't agree with them, partly because they haven't explained to me how the four horsemen of the apocalypse uh, that that clearly happened before they say the rapture happens isn't the wrath of God. Um, mm-hmm. But I can hang with them. That's I, I'm I'm like a very like loose holding in my views. I think there's a lot of mystery. Uh, there's a lot of like, okay, you can have that view and I'm not going to fight you over it. Um, I, I'm, I'm very okay with the idea that those who come to faith in the tribulation are something different. Mm-hmm. And, and mostly because I think I'm okay with mystery. And so I, I don't, I don't have a word for it. I, 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 I think it's a cumbersome term, but tribulation saints seem mm-hmm. accurate. It's not yeah. particularly easy to like. It's it's a cumbersome term, but it's it seems an accurate term. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we know that they're in 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 Ezekiel and in Revelation, uh, both Old and New Testament talk about this kingdom of of Jesus's. We we would Ezekiel wouldn't have understood it. The prophets didn't understand. But we now know from the New Testament that it's Jesus's kingdom here on earth. Um, and in that time, after the tribulation, there will still be like one last rebellion against God. Yeah. So so the people who are born after the tribulation will still need to choose faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and where are they in the, in the whole thing? Are they Christians or are they something else? And I'm I'm very okay with the idea that they are some other group mostly because we have the we already have one to two groups that aren't christians in the bible we have the old testament believers mm-hmm. and we have pre-abraham believers who mm-hmm. were part yep. of that old covenant and yet they're counted you know jesus it talks about jesus setting captivity free so he went to wherever they were being held and proclaimed their his victory and brought them out so I'm I'm okay with the idea that there are these different groups that eventually my, my my personal belief and there's disagreement about this. My personal belief is at some point it'll all be merged together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know there are people that kind of have a, a view that it'll can eternally be these different groups. I don't I don't know because it doesn't say. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm just saying what I'm saying is like the the people who become Christian. I want to become Christians. The people who place their faith in Jesus after the tribulation starts, whether the rapture has happened or not, but mm-hmm. after the tribulation starts, if there has been a a new a new framework, a dispensation of time, uh, whatever, I can biblically live with that idea because we live in a different dispensation of time than Isaiah and King David and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that doesn't bother me particularly let let me let me ask you this and um adam just kind of get your take on this because really where it all comes down for me you know it's that whole idea of um you know god's wrath being 
completely taken care of in Christ. You know, God's wrath against sin is completely yes. taken care of in Christ. And and we, you and I agree with that completely. You know yeah. what I mean? We would all totally agree with that. But the the thing that I see, for example, like you take Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 23, you know, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being yes. uh, justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the interesting thing about that is because he puts Christ there in the center as being the propitiation for sin, you know, the, the wrath bearing sacrifice. And yet he says, you know, he passed over things, sins in the past. I'm at the old Testament saints, but generally speaking, and I think it's where most Protestants land is we believe that their sins were still atoned for by the blood of Jesus. It was just during that time. It was a looking forward to that. Now we post the crucifixion, we're looking back to it. So yes. it, it seems like salvation is still always based upon the wrath, you know, Christ bearing our wrath, whether you're an Old Testament state under the Abrahamic covenant or you're a guy like Melchizedek and Job and these other guys who were before the Jewish law and all that kind of stuff. And to all Christians afterwards, it still seems like we're still stuck with that weird place where if we're going to argue that the church is delivered from the wrath of God, that that's going to be poured out on the earth during the tribulation uh, because Christ has taken our wrath, then it, it just seems like an injustice on God's part that any believer who has had their sins covered by Jesus on the cross would have to endure any of the wrath of God like that. And, you know, I feel like it really hurts, you know, that argument. That, I mean, and, that, I mean I, I'm fine with, I agree with you. God worked in different ways in different times and you needed to live under those covenants respectively. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it just seems like the whole cross of Christ is a central thing, regardless of the covenant you were under or sure. dispensation you were under. So so what I would say is, is uh, in in general, um, in general, that the. Uh, I, I'm going to say I don't know and be OK with saying yeah. I don't know. Um, and, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, the the wrath the wrath of God not being reserved for the church is something that I stand firmly on. And there are this there is this like nebulous group. But, you know, I mean, there's something that uh, there's another really nebulous group that people don't ever talk about. And that's the disciples in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Like so the disciples in the Gospels do not are they're not Christians. That's, everybody forgets that that, yeah, yeah. that the twelve, and not just the twelve, but the faithful women, uh, the the others who were around. You know, um, uh, whether it was like you know uh, Lazarus, who wasn't one of the twelve, but you know Zacchaeus, people who were followers of Jesus, but not part of the twelve. They weren't Christians. They 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 were followers of Jesus, and then people uh, people try to equate them to how we live as Christians, and it's inaccurate until you get to Acts. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit, they haven't been redeemed, all of these things. Yeah. So there are these weird nebulous groups within the scripture. And so I'm okay with saying I don't know, because if you have a group, they would still need salvation through Jesus. But um because they have uh because they have come to faith at a certain point, that's that's just part of the process. I don't think that that's inconsistent. I'm not saying it's not a, a valid point. 
I'm not saying that it doesn't mean anything. Like it's it's a it's an interesting point raised by people that don't buy into the buy into the rapture. Um, but what I always tell people about the rapture to begin with is the only thing I care about is knowing that that the wrath of God is not meant for the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if somebody is, you know, uh in that pre-wrath view and they say nobody gets saved after that second, you know, after that first part of the tribulation. Mm-hmm. And then you're cut. Okay. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to fight over that. Like it's, a, I don't agree with it per se. I haven't been won over by that argument, but it's not something I want to argue about because we agree on that core thing. Um, mm-hmm. What I get really bothered by is there are people who I've, I've seen teaching where they've said the church must go through it. The church needs to be purified through the fires of tribulation. The church is, you know, they, they're this really, um, incomplete view of of the work of god um mm-hmm. I, like i i knew a pastor when i was in england who who taught that christians it was like this like a uh, very very short-lived form of purgatory where he taught that he he believed christians would before they entered heaven would go through some final purging fire a painful experience uh because we have all of these things that haven't been dealt with yet as if jesus didn't deal with them on the cross mm-hmm. and and I and I think it's that kind of teaching that I I will stand against firmly just because it says that there's something Jesus didn't die for. There's something that was limited in the work of the cross. And that's the that's the kind of thing I'd, I'd stand firm on. I, if somebody comes and says, well, what about this group? Therefore, I don't believe in the rapture. It doesn't it doesn't particularly bother me. Yeah, uh, it's it's just it's just the. Um, I think it's some, a lot of times it's people come to what they're most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I mean, sovereignty versus free will. Yeah. Somebody is more comfortable with God being all sovereign and minimizing the free will. Somebody's more comfortable with human free will. And, and a lot of times it's our own experience. You know, Martin Luther had a very like sovereignty focused conversion where he, yeah. you know, he, in a, in a, in a thunderstorm, you know, experienced the power of God. So it's very like God initiated it. And then there's other people who they don't, through their process, they don't see the hand of God as clearly. And they literally sat down one night and made it an intellectual decision that they followed through with their soul. But but they 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 responded in free will. And so they emphasize that because that's their experience. Mm-hmm. And maybe Martin Luther didn't see his free will response as clearly. And maybe that free will person didn't see how God was sovereignly leading them to that place of decision. Um, and I think with the, the end time stuff, like a lot of it comes down to like, what are you most comfortable with? And, mm-hmm. and then, it, and it's not really about what the scripture says. It's just what I'm most comfortable with. Yeah. Well, and, and let's just be honest. I think, you know, even when you and I were kind of discussing this online a little bit there, I kind of pointed out the fact, you know, I think there was a long, there was a long history in American Christianity, at least, you know, especially during the Jesus movement time, kind of the post 1950s where dispensationalism was it. And, you know, and there's some people, they just hold to it. Why? Because that's what grandma and grandpa taught me. That's what I learned in Sunday school. That's what I read and left behind, you know? And so they just hold on to it because they're comfortable with it. You know, I I had Sam Storms on the show about one year ago, on my show, about one year ago, discussing all millennialism. And I was really kind of pushing back with him with dispensationalism because he went through Dallas Theological Seminary and everything. And like he said, when he did the shift, from a pre-tribulational dispensational rapture position to being a historical premillennialist. 
I mean, he was almost crucified by people at that time. Like, how dare you drop the rapture, you know? Sure. And then, of course, when he when he went full on mill, you know, he totally lost some people at that time. But and but I think there is a lot of cultural things that go into our eschatology as well. And I'm not saying that's wrong, you know. And I also want people to understand too. I'm not I'm not hostile, uh, you know, towards the you know traditional rapture view or anything like that like i don't want anyone to hear this oh jack's hostile to it no matter of fact i hate most of the criticisms i hear against it because they're stupid and they don't understand the position you know i mean just yeah. when i get frank anytime i hear yeah. like, oh it's just escapism it's like no it's not that has nothing to do with it we all believe in persecution we don't believe that the pre-tribulational rapture is about escaping persecution it has nothing to do with that in fact some of the people who i know who are most afraid that persecution is happening are are the like rabidly extremist oh. premillennial rapture people. They're convinced they're being persecuted left, right, and center. Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time, I know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, well, that's what Americans do. We take the most straw man, cartoonish version of mm-hmm. of whatever uh, thing and then, and then uh, use that or an outdated version. So like um, with like Calvinist or Reformed theology, I don't know how many people I've heard, you know, they'll say, well, that's what they believe. And it's like, that's what, like the person who you think of as the, as the banner, uh, you know, the, the, the standard bearer for, for that view taught 40 years ago, mm-hmm. but that's not what the current thinking is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things about, we went to the same Bible college, you know, and you had to, you had to listen to the, the, through the Bible teaching over your over your time there, like a certain amount each semester of yeah. the, the the founding pastor, and I'm thankful for that. You know, I I learned yeah. a lot about the Bible through that method. That's why we do the 20 minute Bible study podcast. But at the same time, like by the time we were there, some of those, especially like the the uh, the early Old Testament stuff, that was like showing its age, and it's even more so now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, you got this like 30 to 50 year old teaching. And so he'll, he would talk about like, this is what this theology believes. And it was accurate at the time. But the mm-hmm. danger was then, you know, in the 2000s and the 2010s, I would talk to pastors in that group of churches and they'd say, well, this is what covenant theology believes. And yeah. then he'd say, well, no, that's what they believed 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. The, the, their current thinking is not quite that. And you, you've, you're using outdated information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I've seen that from people who are very much against the idea of a rapture or taking revelation literally, and they'll use the most extreme or outdated person as their representative of this is what they believe, or, yeah. or they'll use some like, you know, literally crazy person church as their example. And it's like, that's, that's a really unfair way of arguing anything. Yeah. Um, and now amillennial, for those who don't know, amillennial is a theological belief that the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus that's talked about at the end of the book of Revelation, it's talked about in the book of Ezekiel, is metaphorical. They don't really believe it's going to happen. They, they, um, We have a church locally. Um, they're part of the Millerite tradition, which is not so big here, but there's still a lot of churches back east. Mm-hmm. And one of their big tenets, you know how like uh, our, our previous group of churches was like the rapture. Their yeah. big thing was when it says the day of the Lord— that everything is like one literal day. So there's not a seven year tribulation. It's everything happens in one day. Mm-hmm. God will pour out his judgment and then everything's done. Like it's a literal day. So they were like really adamant about that. Yep. And 
So I've, you know, I've, that's kind of in that view that there's no literal thousand year reign of Jesus. There's no seven year yeah. tribulation. It's just, and then historic, the, when they say historicist or historical view, what they're saying is the book of the revelation happened is talking about things that happened in the past. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's talking mm-hmm. about the persecutions of Christians in 64 and in 95 AD. It's things that happened in the past. And so we can read about like a historical document the way we might read Isaiah or uh, Daniel or something, but it's not something for the future. Um, Yeah. Now, I usually respond, like, imagine how it tripped out the disciples when Jesus said that the abomination that causes desolation hadn't happened yet, because they all Mm -hmm. thought it had happened with Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabees. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for Jesus to, I mean, I I think Christians miss how shocking that teaching was uh, for him to come along and tell you, oh, by the way, hey, that thing that you think happened hasn't happened yet. That was Mm -hmm. only like a partial fulfillment, a a foreshadowing, you know? Yeah. Um, And and I think that kind of thing, uh, I I actually, this is a a shift I've had in revisiting Revelation. Mm Mm-hmm. I've become very okay with the earlier date, even though I personally, for historical reasons, think that the book was written in the 90s AD. I'm very okay with the idea that it was written in the 60s AD and that it was partially talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, because Mm -hmm. that would fit biblical pattern actually better um, when you think about it. It would fit the, the first and second, the partial and full fulfillment, the patterns of whatever term you want to use, depending on what book you're writing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually way more okay with it from a theological standpoint, even though historically I tend to lead towards that later date. Yeah. Um, well, you know. And I, and I think what you touch on there is very important. And I think this is where like some of our all millennialist friends or post millennialist friends or historist friends, you know, I think kind of fall off the wagon is because they'll push so hard. Hey, this stuff was about something that happened in the past. You know, it was about Nero. The Mark of the Beast is all about that and all these kinds of things. And like, and I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah, I'm kind of like you. I don't actually have a problem with that. I, I, I don't have a problem with it being about that at the same time being about some future event as well, because like you said, prophecy so often happens that way you know you look at the prophecies of jesus in the old testament and if you were to just take those at face value as the way a lot of you know literalists you know read the book of revelation and stuff you would think christ had to come suffer and set up his kingdom and do everything all in one event but when we see the way prophecy works out no that's not how it's working out i mean there are verses within the book of isaiah that the fulfillment within the verse half of the verse was fulfilled 2000 years ago the other half of the verse isn't going to be fulfilled till some future date still yet to come and so i think yeah we need to have um it, this is where i think it's good for us to be aware of the other positions why they hold what they hold and why we need to be dialoguing with people outside of our own camp so that we're not just so narrow-minded on our own specific view so that we even hear other challenges and even learn how these challenges can even help and sometimes strengthen us in our own positions yeah or, or you know what if somebody's raising just a really valid question like there, yeah. i think there's there's this idea i was i was uh interacting with a guy recently and he said um uh, I, I, he said, I don't trust a single thing that this guy says mm-hmm. because he's, he's friendly with this one group. And I was like, really, you, you think that he can't say anything of value, anything you can't trust anything that he says, yeah. you know, I, that's such an extremist kind of position that, um, you know, I, I, I just get really, really wary about that. I mean, I, I think some of it is like learning who's good at what, you know, um, mm-hmm. like, uh, Spurgeon, 
was the greatest preacher of his generation, at least the most influential. Yeah. And he's terrible on the end times, not because of a different theology, but because he just adamantly did not want to engage with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got, I've got quotes and books where, where he just says like, I would, I would rather never talk about this. So it's not that we had disagreements in theology. It's that he just did not care to engage. So he's useless on the subject. Um, you know, uh, uh, William Barclay is fantastic on histories and culture, and he's terrible on theology. So mm -hmm. I, I have Barclay commentaries for history and culture, and then, uh, and actually sometimes pastoral things. He'll write something very, very like about the human soul. That's beautiful. And, 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 but he's terrible on theology. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I did one time, I took a wrong turn in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I walked right by his church. And I, I always am grateful for that moment to see where he pastored. Um, yeah. And uh, but but it's, I think it's these things that we think like, oh, that person's part of this group or has that opinion. So therefore, they're useless to me. And yep. like, that, that's ridiculous because so many people have like areas of strength. What, what gets a little sketchy, like N.T. Wright is somebody who I appreciate. Yeah. And N.T. Wright has done so much in terms of apology. He's not considered an apologist, but he's he's far superior as an apologetic person than most people mm -hmm. call themselves that. But he's his focus is the resurrection and on Paul. The problem is that Paul deals with all of these theological ideas that N.T. Wright is not an expert in. And so mm -hmm. then he'll start talking about the end time stuff. And it's like, man, even for people in your position, you obviously don't know. Like people who agree with you would probably be like, eh, because it's not his expertise. Mm -hmm. uh, and. Now, one thing I think is interesting, and we talked at the beginning about this uh, this conversation about racism. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is really interesting about why certain groups hold to the historical view of revelation, that is, that it is about the past, it's not about the future, is, I think, comes back to what's called replacement theology, which is this idea that Israel has been totally replaced in the plans of God by the church. Yeah, where, where the book of Romans says that the church was grafted in, like you graft in one plant to another, and, they, and we're connected. Um, so dispensational theology, uh, people who believe in the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, tend to be very pro-Israel, because we don't think God's done with Israel. He still has prophetic promises he's made to the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so, so we aren't anti-Jewish. But European Christianity had large swaths of anti-Semitism among theologians, pastors, leaders. Um, and so when early dispensationalists, and everybody thinks of like, uh, you know, like was like a Ryrie, like in 1901 or something like that. But there yeah, were guys, yeah, right? Yeah, but there were guys writing well before him in Europe, especially England. Um, and I've got commentaries from guys who are writing like 1850, 1870, who are saying, hey, these prophecies in the book of Daniel, these prophecies in Ezekiel have never been fulfilled. We have no historical analog analogous for when these and even Revelation, if you take mm -hmm. a historicist view, these things that we see in Revelation did not happen when uh, it, Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. It didn't happen during the, the Roman emperor, uh, imperial times. And so they said, hey, these things have still got to happen. So they were writing about Jews returning to Israel and making it once again their homeland because it was just like a logical step. If you're going to have a temple again in Jerusalem, then you have to have Jewish people in control of the land again. And so they were writing about it anywhere from 50 to 100 years before Israel became a state. And mm -hmm. they were... 
they were skewered for it. They were raked over the coals by other theologians and church leaders like, you are crazy, you are an insane person. And then nobody apologized when they were proven right in 1948. Um, but but I think there's this idea that people don't want to come to terms with is that the founders of a lot of our modern Protestant streams of theology and church had issues with anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that Israel is still important, that the and I mean Israel as the Jewish people, not necessarily a secular state, but the idea that the Jewish people are still important in God's plans would have been something that they could never have comp like Martin Luther would have never comprehended that. Mm -hmm. And and, and it's that kind of uh, prejudice and racism uh, that we we still, I think, have to come to terms with. The, the idea that some of our streams of our founders of theology had issues that we haven't dealt with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's like where we just have to, you know, you, you got to read history within its time. This was the mindset of the people at their time. And so, yeah, we do have to kind of dissect through that and kind of recognize, and that's not good. I mean, how many how many young reformed, you know, guys have been completely shocked, you know, when they grew up reading about Luther and his first like, you know, 15 years as a Protestant. And then when they find out about his last few years of a Protestant, they're like, oh, my goodness, when he's putting out all this racist, anti-Semitic literature and all this kind of stuff. I mean, man, that's a hard stuff to deal with. But we have to look at it realizing, you know what, though, man, in so many ways, he was just speaking to the drumbeat of his time, because even though his eyes had been open to some important aspects of the gospel over here, he did not make the connection over here. And and it was to his shame. And it has, you know, been a real blight on, you know, Christianity ever since, to be frank. Sure. And, and uh, you know, so, so our group of churches that I'm pastoring in now is, is part of a Wesleyan tradition. So, so yeah. you know, Wesley, uh, what will happen is among some of our like really like old guard kind of guys, they'll say, well, mm -hmm. John Wesley said this or this is what they did when they were starting. And I'm like, yeah, but look at it from where Wesley was. They were like very short relative to history, very shortly removed from the Reformation. The, yeah. the Church of England that Wesley came up in and that that his group founded in was still very, very Catholic influenced. And, oh, yeah. and so, you know, uh, like we have, we still have in our bylaws rules about infant baptism and, and we have it because of this historical Wesleyan view. Nope. The, the pastors in our group, if we, if we were to vote for our conference of churches, Washington, Oregon, we'd probably vote to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. It's really hard nationally to change our bylaws and actually yeah. up in the Dakotas, um, I've talked to people, and this is what you were saying about dialoguing with people. I've talked to people up, uh, who, who are in our churches up in like the Dakotas, especially. And there's such a huge German Lutheran influence in those areas that they need to have some kind of framework for child dedication that's more than just the standard uh, non-denominational version of like, we're just going to pray a blessing over the child and the parents. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Because that's just expected in the culture there, that there would be a, a christening, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding of that. But my, my point is, is this idea of one group established something, therefore it can never be questioned again. Yeah. Um, I think there's wisdom in going back and saying, hey, they've already worked through these problems. Is there something we can learn from that? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, like I was talking to a friend of mine in California, and uh, his, he's part of a, a newer church. But they're essentially functioning like a Plymouth Brethren church. Hmm. And I, I mentioned that and he's like, who are they? And I was like, you need to find out about them because what you guys are doing is not in the norm of West Coast Protestant Christianity, but it is, there is a huge established history and tradition of what you're doing. 
So if you learn about them, you might learn some of the mistakes they made and some of the, the good decisions they made, and you might have an easier time of it. Uh, so I think there's something about learning from history, but also like always questioning it and, yeah. and challenging it. Well, and I think maybe that's something too. Maybe some people should hear from me because they've probably heard me not be sympathetic, but be kind of like, hey, you know, we just got to accept that this was, you know, the way people thought at that time. I'm not saying it's right yeah. by any means. The, the thing I struggle with a lot is a lot of the just vehement anger that people seem to have against the past these days. And mm -hmm. it's not helpful. I mean, I'm the kind of guy it's like when something needs to change, it changes. I mean, that's just how it's going to be. When I took on my church here that I'm at in Missouri, I mean, one of the deacons ended up leaving, and if he hadn't left, I would have kicked him out. And if the church had not been okay with that, I would have been gone because he denied the deity of Christ. I mean, that's what I walked into nine years sure. ago when I showed up at this sure. church. And I have done a long transition of changing some doctrinal positions and beliefs and confronting things. Like, here, here's here's a funny thing about racism. Like, I, I, it's always funny to me when I hear people talk about preaching against racism in their churches. You know, maybe they get like an angry blog post or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angry tweet. I had somebody straight up start arguing with me verbally in the middle of my sermon and walk out, you yeah. know? So for me, it's like when I'm preaching on racism, I mean, I, I don't want to paint too pretty of a picture around here. There are races, you know, and some people don't want to hear it at all. Like I am actually preaching against something I have to confront and deal with, Sure, you know, and generally with most people, when I talk to them, it's fine and it's over with, you know, but you will still run across some people that are like, they're going to let you know how they feel about stuff. But of course, what they feel about normally is some character they saw caricature they saw on Fox News that they're against and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, just get over it, guys. Let's talk about the real issue, you know. And so, you know, so, yeah, I mean, we need to call out the problems of the past, theologically, doctrinally recognize the things that moved people towards those positions that they had uh, yeah. and bring corrections. And it's going to be countercultural for our own time. You know, it, it's going to be it's going to be countercultural in our uh, congregations, in our general society. I mean, it, it, it just is going to be and we have to be willing to take those stands at times, because if not, I, things aren't going to change. <laughs> I, I think that's an interesting question when it comes to being countercultural, because the I, I think part of the reason why the teaching about the rapture and the end times of Bible prophecy was so, so popular mm -hmm. in the previous generation of the church was that it answered the questions of the 50s and 60s. Yep. Where are we going? How is this all going to end? I mean, you know, the world came so close in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis to just not massive devastation, end of, of yeah. modern civilization. Um, and, and we came close again in 83, but most people don't know about Abel Archer, but it's, I'll just throw that yeah, out. Yeah. If, you just, yep. if, you, if you Wikipedia search Abel Archer 83, you'll find out we came close again, just people didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. But you know, these that answered the question up until the 80s, right? Because you were still up until, you know, the mid 80s, you're like, are the Russians coming? You know, there's a reason we made the movie Red Dawn um, mm. and, and that kind of thing. So uh, which is uh, one of my favorite movies ever. But um, <laughs> but there's a reason that that was it spoke to those questions. Mm -hmm. And and so there's part of the reason, like I've been at Faith on Hill uh, six years and. I, I haven't I haven't done uh, Revelation until now because it's just it, to me it was always like well it's not answering the questions of today mm -hmm. but there is a certain counterculturalism to say here is this thing we see in the Bible that maybe the world around us is not interested in but God's interested in it because He put it in the Bible mm -hmm. and and there is something to that um, like I was uh, we, our starting points podcast uh, we just released. 
the the episode on first and second chronicles and you know first chronicles has the biggest doozy of a genealogy you know it's not just a chapter like in genesis or in matthew it's like chapters of genealogy and uh i read j vernon mcgee said it was important enough to god that he put it in there Mm. and that struck me as like okay if god bothered to put something in i should take note and if if there's whole massive sections of the Bible in regards to Bible prophecy, uh, there's this huge book is the end piece of the New Testament that deals with Bible prophecy. Um, we should take note, even if it's not popular in our moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's something to that. I actually think one of the things, because you and I had this conversation uh, about the book of the Revelation a couple of days ago online. Um, and we, we were both commenting, and I, I said the, one of the biggest failures of our previous group of churches was that they did not really trans, transmit teaching about uh, the rapture and so on to the next generation of pastors. Um, mm-hmm. And and I know quite a few younger prominent pastors in that group who don't really believe in the rapture, but they just kind of vaguely teach it because that's what the group believes in. Yeah. Uh, and when and I and I'll chuckle because like I'm considered a younger pastor, even though I'm not. No young person thinks I'm actually young. Um, yeah, but, but <laughs> I we're getting old, Adam. We're getting old, I, man. No, I, I know it. <laughs> I know it. Um, but the problem is in that group of churches that the pastors refuse to retire, and so they're like seventy years old, and they're like, "Oh, you young kids," and like you, I'm not young anyway. But yeah. they never transmitted it to the next generation. And, and so if there was like a pastor's conference and there was like, you know, two younger preachers and three older preachers, the older preachers were the ones who got assigned to talk about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. If there's a, if there's a teaching rotation at a bigger church, right. And there's the older founding pastor and he's got a couple of younger preachers with him. He will be the one to talk about that because that's his like favorite thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. They never gave it to our generation to wrestle with partly because what happens when you question stuff? Like um, one of the last classes I took at Bible college was Revelation. Mm-hmm. And I, I got the st- standard teaching about chapters two and three, that the seven churches represent seven ages of the church. And we're obviously, uh, we're obviously just before the last age of the church and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And I remember questioning the, the teacher on that, like, where are you getting this from? Your hermeneutic is inconsistent with every other part of the Bible. Uh, you don't have anywhere else in the scripture that tells us this. The book itself does not tell us this. You know, it explains mysteries. Hey, I'll tell you the mystery of this. I'll explain that. It never says that. And and it was like, shut it down. You are not allowed to question this. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think there's this thing where we, if we don't pass something along to the next generation theologically, and I think about this a lot now as, as we are getting older, what happens mm-hmm. when the the people in their 20s and what happens when people who are still in like middle school or elementary school, but they come of age, will we will we pass along the, the torch to them and let them wrestle through it and have the freedom to challenge us? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's something that didn't happen. It's a really sh- a great shame that generally speaking, the the torch wasn't passed, the freedom wasn't given to process through. And maybe on the other side, that generation would have come out saying, yeah, we generally believe in this, but we're not as firm on this thing as you are. And we take a different view on this point than you did. 
And I don't think that was okay. It was like, you have to have total orthodoxy. Um, yep. And what ends up happening or what they is, considered orthodoxy. Well, sure. But what yeah. ends up happening is because being part of a Wesleyan tradition, um, and I don't know how much you know about uh, whole, the holiness movement of the 1800s. Uh, I know yeah. quite a bit. Well, quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I'm still have revivals. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. We have revivals at my church. Uh, I'm actually grouping up to do a revival here at yeah. the end of this month or end of March with a holiness pastor. So yeah. just who's just like a few blocks from my house right now. Yeah. So, so, so something, something that gets talked about a lot is at our, at our conferences, there's always that one older pastor who gets up and gives the, the textbook definition of what they say holiness is. Mm -hmm. And all the younger pastors sit there quietly and say, none of us teach that. Yeah. We all, we all believe that God does a work of victory in people's lives that, that, you know, we want to take things seriously, that we want to be full of the love of God. But there's never a freedom for us to, like, work through it. It's always the gatekeepers holding things. Mm -hmm. And I think in our that group of churches that we were a part of, that gatekeeping was held. The gatekeeping was held by people on the theology of the end times. Mm -hmm. And we weren't allowed to wrestle through it. Just as the same as with the people who are against uh, my particular point of view on the end times. Their gatekeeping is the other way. You can't ever question Luther or Spurgeon or Calvin, even though it's like maybe the reason they had this theology was was at least somewhat racism, that they didn't want to deal with Israel. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a gatekeeping. You can't process through that. You have to maintain the line. And that's scary mm -hmm. when you can't when you can't yeah. have an open, open, honest conversation about something. Well, you know, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people. I mean, I'm surrounded by a lot of SBC pastors around here and stuff like that. And of course, SBC is in this huge ruckus right now. I know you and I are in some uh, yeah. certain meme groups together, and I see you poking, you know, poking the bear all the time and stuff. And I love seeing it when you do it. But one of the discussions I've had with people about groups and organizations is I don't think God cares if any specific group of churches lasts into the next generation. I, what he has promised is that the church will continue. Yes. People will get saved and that will continue on. But I mean, whether or not at one time Luther and the Lutherans were the big guys that God was really using to bring reformation or, or Calvin, or you get into American history with the Puritans and the Baptist and all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, and then of course the heritage you and I came out of in the Jesus movement. I think God just loves to raise up people for their time to address issues of their time tolerating some of their excesses because he knows we're people and we're not as wise as him. And so he's willing to just put up with a lot of stuff. And then when that thing has run its course, God has no problem then raising up the next generation of something else, something new, something sure. different, you know? And I mean, I think about, you know, when we were younger guys, the young restless reformed, that was the big thing. You know, we had the Mars Hills and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if you were ever into Driscoll and stuff, but I definitely was. And everybody, you know, I pretty much knew was even guys who were in the circle you and I came out of. And I think there was good that came out of that. But even now we're kind of seeing some of the fallout. And I think God has no problem raising up these different traditions at their times um you know to kind of push against like you like you're talking about some of the gatekeepers who are holding people back and the thing we just have to be aware of you know when you and I reach a certain age we're going to be we're going to be gatekeepers because sure. we have we've been all about shepherding the flock fighting against false doctrine and all this kind of stuff and what we need to be aware of is that we need to let people question the questionable things and to raise up the next generation to be able to go forward with the things that God are doing, God is doing in their time. I mean, this is why for me as a pastor, uh, like I, I lead the youth group, you know, it's a small church. So I'm, I'm one of the guys leading the youth group. And one of the things I really emphasize with our kids is you can ask anything, mm -hmm. absolutely anything. Nothing is off the table. If you got a question about key Christian doctrines, 
ask us so that we can give you a biblical defense as to why we believe this. If you push back on certain secondary doctrines, ask us these questions so that we can explain to you why we believe what you believe, what we believe. So that even if you end up in a different position, at least you're not attacking a caricature. You you actually know why you believe something differently, you know, over secondary issues. And then of course, and all sorts of cultural issues and everything as well. Like that, that's something I'm very, you know, try to focus on. And even in my own family with my kids, I don't ever want any young Christian to think I can't ask something because it's going to get shut down. Like I have always promised, I will try to the best of my ability, answer your question the best way I can go back and do some research to give you a good answer and be honest enough to sometimes say, I don't know. And it is a mystery. And I'm sure somebody else has an answer, but I don't. And I think that's the kind of thing where like, um, you know, we, I I think it horrifies people when they want to hold to a very specific thing and they don't want to give people time. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, uh, we had some people that were around the church for a little bit, and they wanted me to preach against something that was popular among a certain group of people in the church. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, yeah, like a, privately, I've told them I don't agree with that. But but you want me to preach against this one thing? You don't want me to? What about this other thing? No, don't don't talk about that. Well, yeah, but that's something that's also unbiblical. And mm-hmm. I could, I could spend, you know, I could spend all this time on it, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to like preach Jesus, teach the Bible. Like I'm trying to get the whole thing. I mean, even um, we have a mutual friend, although I've since defriended him recently on Facebook. But uh, you know, uh, MLK happened, and he posted oh, this. Yeah, thing I know about, what you're talking. Yeah, he yeah. posted <laughs> this thing, and the reason I defriended him, just so people wonder, is I put up with this guy for over a decade. For 15 years, I put up with this guy. Yeah. And and I put up is the right word to say it. Um, and uh, he he said something disrespectful to Angie. And that was why I defriended him. Like, <laughs> I want to know yeah. the line that crossed. This guy has been nothing but disrespectful and, and flippant towards me for 15 years. Uh, yeah. But he said something to my wife. And that was why I, I defriended him. But anyway, he was saying it's not enough. If, you, if you're at church and you just posted like a happy MLK day thing on your social media, like you're, you're fakers. It's not enough. You're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got, and I was like, well, first of all, man, I posted something on our social media. Cause that's just what you do. I post something yeah, exactly. on, on, I post something on like every holiday. If it's a federal holiday, uh, other than Columbus day, um, I post something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, so, you know, that's what you do. But I said, how do you know what I'm doing? Like, you know, he was adamant after uh, Charlottesville happened back in like 2018, mm-hmm. and uh, that that uh, white supremacist guy drove a car into a bunch of bunch of people. He was adamant. Every pastor has to talk about this on Sunday. You have to preach about it, and I didn't because I knew that in three weeks we were coming to uh, the part in the Bible in in Acts where the the Hellenistic Jews were feeling left out, mm-hmm. and I said, you know what? All those problems are still going to be there in three weeks. And it's going to mean more if we just let the Bible speak about it than if I get up on my hobby horse. Mm -hmm. But it's not, you know, it wasn't enough for him. And you have to do this. And they don't see, you know, it's like, what if there's a church that just posted a thing on their social media for the first time this year uh, because they've been working towards this for a number of years, you know? And and there's just, there's no little, so little grace. And I think that kind of comes back to, um, where we're at between like urban and rural, coastal and central, even different theological points of view. Like there's so little grace. Like 
uh, you you said we're in some of the same these these meme groups. You, and the, and the mm-hmm. point of the group is to post funny memes, right? But yeah. then right now, because America is so polarized, there's people that are just bent on posting the most polarizing memes that aren't really funny. Um, yeah. They're they're just like like they're only funny if you agree with them, and what's funny to you is like, oh, that guy's dumb. Oh, that guy's you know. And one of the the things that I've been saying is, it's not that. First of all, I'm offended that your meme isn't funny. But second of all, like even if I agreed with you, and I generally do, it's that your meme is unloving. That you don't have compassion for a different point of view, a different a different tradition. Yeah. It's just like I'm gonna. If you're not in 100% lockstep with me, I'm gonna be a total jerk to you. Yeah, yeah. No, it it was funny. I was. I'm in a. Um. I mean, one of the things you know about me is like I'm a strong continuationist, and that's that's one of the things that brought me into you know the the group that you and I were a part of for a long time. Which actually, I'm still a part of kind of the new branch. You know, in yeah. a way. And um, you know, and especially you know being a continuationist, having a strong charismatic bent, I have to deal with that kind of stuff all the time. And I'm in a reformed uh, charismatic group that I love because truth is my favorite charismatics are all reformed guys. I mean, it's Sam Storms, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, lots of guys like that. But I saw one of the guys, he he had posted up um, a statement made by William Lane Craig, who I think might be a soft continuationist, but it's definitely not something he talks about at all. But, yeah. um, you know, it, he was just kind of attacking Craig's view on foreknowledge. And um, I'm in this reformed group kind of incognito. I'm not really reformed. I'm actually more of a Molinist leaning guy myself. And he made a comment about him. And I just kind of pretending like I'm reformed, even though I'm not, you know, just kind of like, I want you to know you're misrepresenting him. You're completely mm-hmm. misrepresenting everything he says. You're misrepresenting his argument. And one of the statements I said was, and I know this because I listen to this guy all the time. I'm very familiar with his theology. And he came back with me like, if you think that this guy is off in a lot of points, why do you listen to him all the time? And the way I just kind of shot back at him, the same reason all the guys in our group will quote guys like Chuck Smith, John w- John Wimber, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, all these guys who have completely different theological perspectives when it comes to soteriology, end times, all this kind of stuff, but they're fairly close when it comes to this one topic. It's because we grow through a broad understanding of doctrinal positions and perspectives and representing other people well. If we don't represent our brothers in Christ in different traditions well, um, you know, all we're doing is slandering each other, and that's unacceptable. We can't be doing that as Christians. Yeah, and and you mentioned the Young, Restless, and Reformed group, which was a big thing like 15, 20 years ago. And yeah. the thing that was such a bummer about um, Mark Driscoll being a total jerk, I was going to say something yeah. stronger. Uh, yeah. He was he, he was a jerk. Let's just leave he, it there. He was a I jerk. mean, he's yeah, he's disqualified. As, he should not be pastoring. He he shouldn't, you know, there's all these things. Yeah. But what happened was, and and older, and I'm going to define older as as church leaders who are at retirement age or past mm-hmm. retirement age and have not retired. I was on staff during during the height of Mars Hill's uh, uh, pop, you know, influence within American Christianity. Uh, I was on staff at, a, at a, a church in Washington and then a church in California, and both churches were pastored by people that were very, did not want to deal with the central challenges that Mars Hill was putting forward. You're not listening to the younger people. You're not engaging with culture as it is now. You're engaging with culture as you want it to be. Yeah. Um, you are you are um, you are very interested in maintaining something instead of expanding the kingdom. Uh, you know all these kind of different things that were like valid valid points of criticism and valid challenges. And 
when when Driscoll finally was outed as as being disqualified, these leaders said, "See, we were right." And it's like, no, you weren't. You might have been right about him. You might have in, yeah. you know, you might have seen something in him. Although ironically, they saw something in him that they refused to see in leaders in that group of churches. Um, but the they saw something that wasn't right without having to ever engage with the questions which were valid and and i think that's part of the problem like um like i had i had somebody in my church really push back with me on on black lives matter well do you know it's a it's a socialist marxist organization and this and that i'm like i'm not talking about an organization i'm talking about a central premise mm -hmm. and and what if they are socialist and marxist but they're raising one they're raising a valid question yeah um what if what if this person from a different theological tradition than I'm in is raising a valid question? What, what mm -hmm. if, what if um, what's going on in another church, you know, Asbury is this thing that was going on. It was making people so uncomfortable and I loved it. Yeah. But my, my, my general pushback anytime somebody brought it up is it's raising questions that almost every group is going to have to deal with because the people who are like charismatics it's not a charismatic revival. It doesn't look like what the Pentecostals would say a revival should look like. Yeah. People who are reformed, it's not a reformed group. People who are all modernist, you know, the church has to be totally modern and big light show. And it was like the most unmodern meeting you'd ever seen. And so, so all of these things, like it made, it raised uncomfortable questions. And if we don't like dealing with those, um, you know, it's just easy to wall ourselves off. And, yeah. and hide from it um, you know and that was one of the things i really respected about asbury and from what i heard from friends who were there and the way they were trying to shepherd it is they just kept it as this is what god's doing so this is what we're going to do you know because they weren't letting the charismatics come running in with their tambourines and their horns and all that kind of yes. stuff you know yeah. and I, that's one of the things i really respected about asbury you know i mean they i thought they shepherded it really well and i don't know whatever long-term fruit comes from it will be awesome but yeah but it, but it's that whole paradigm thing God does not care about us and our traditions. He cares mm -hmm. about doing what he's going to do. And we got to get in line with that. I, lo I love what Martin Luther said, not Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards is famous for saying, uh, it's not for me to get myself to get God in line with my will, but to go and see what God's will is and get myself going there, you know, and yeah. that's what we need to be. You know, and that's where, yeah. I mean, like the Jesus movement that we came out of, I mean, that's why it had such a great impact because it was a real move of God and people who got on board, man, awesome things happened. And to be frank, people who didn't, I mean, they kind of got stuck in the past, unfortunately, and are still just kind of banging their old, same old drums, you know? <laughs> I, I did see a um, a faculty member at Asbury early on to give, he was trying to give framework for what was happening. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, he basically took credit that Asbury caused the Jesus movement. Oh, was, I heard that. Yeah. 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 Which was ironic since, since the churches that Asbury tends to like send pastors to, uh, were largely disconnected from the Jesus movement. Um, yes. There's a, there's a certain irony to that 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 I um, and a hubris that that I found greatly amusing. Yeah. Um, it, 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 yeah. Yeah. I was just gonna say it was kind of funny when the Asbury revival kind of started here. You know, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, for the longest time, I was kind of wondering, it's like, why is everybody talking about the Asbury revival all of a sudden? Because I was thinking the 1960s, 1970s Asbury revival. It yeah. took me a couple of days to realize, oh, something's happening now. 
but sure but yeah and and i remember i've had some other people kind of mention that article to me and i was i was kind of laughing to myself because yeah yeah i i generally respect that theologian quite a bit i think he's a great guy great theologian sure. very humble man you know for these continuation guys like me we love a lot of his published works but um yeah i, I thought he was kind of like really dude like the jesus movement was happening all over the place it wasn't just one it was like fires popping up all over where god's like i'm shaking everything up everywhere I think that's a thing with academia in general. Um, Center Church by Keller, he, mm-hmm. he way overemphasizes the importance of Christian academia in the life yep. of the church. Um, dramatically overemphasizes it. I'm reading um, Thomas Oden's How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind right now. Mm-hmm. Great book. But he also dramatically overemphasizes uh, the importance of academia. and. Yep. And what, like, I, I, I'm thankful for academia. Um, and uh, at the same time, it's, you know, what God's doing is often hidden. And it's often, mm-hmm. it's often somewhere where the, the spotlight isn't. And, and so I think sometimes these guys have this really overinflated view of, of their connection to the church. Because, like, relative to academia, you've used a lot of big church words in our mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and and relative to academia, that's like elementary level stuff, right? Yeah. Relative to the average Christian, like, wait, what's that? What's soteriology? What's, you know, yeah. what's that? And because uh, what's continuationism? Because we don't, the average Christian, I don't think cares. Yeah. And, and uh, so, so there's this like, when, when somebody graduates from Bible college or seminary or whatever, they have to go through like a processing. Like I've, I've said this for a while, like the worst person to let preach in your church is somebody who's just graduated from Bible college or seminary because they haven't had time to process like what people really care about yet. And they haven't had time to realize, you know what, there should have been a class in seminary on basic maintenance, mm-hmm. uh, how to fix a church toilet. Uh, you know, there should have been a class in seminary on, uh, government paperwork. You know, there's all these things that they don't, they just don't talk about. The practicals. Yeah. The practicals. Right. And most people are just like, I'm working my life. I'm trying to figure out how to like work through. Um, if they're, if they're older, they're trying to process a world that has changed on them quickly. If they're, mm-hmm. if they're middle-aged, they're trying to figure out like, how do I, how do I, you know, raise my kids? Cause it was easy when I grew up in the nineties, there was youth group culture. There was Christian, you know, a lot of that's gone away. Yeah. And so how do I raise my kids? Like we had a conversation last night uh, with our kids about um, pronouns and self-identifying because my oldest son had an assignment where he was, had to write how he identified himself. Oh boy. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, we had a, we have a pastor who's originally from Georgia, but he's, he's out here now. And he did a, a big sabbatical trip all through the American Midwest and South this last summer. And his big takeaway was stuff that we've already wrestled through here in, in the Northwest. They're only just starting to wrestle with in Minnesota and in Iowa and in Georgia and so on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we had this conversation with our kids about it last night because I'm trying to figure out how do I, how do I work through uh, raising my kids in, in a, uh, in a culture that's not a Christian, there's no, the Christian subculture has largely gone away. And, and even if I wanted to seek it out, cause I could find it, I know how ineffective it was. It was, it was terrible. It was a terrible failure. It was a failure. It was absolute failure. Yeah. So, so I think that's the things like when you come out of seminary and then you're, you're thinking like these big 
theological discussions. It's like, how does that affect me? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So like yeah. my, my, my point about like the book of the revelation is just be consistent. Like mm-hmm. we take every other book of the Bible, even the prophecy books, literally, except where they're obviously figurative. So that's how we'll approach revelation. Uh, we take every other book of the Bible seriously. So we're going to take revelation seriously that, you know, you can be free to have different opinions within that basic framework. Um, and, and I think that's the, the challenge that pastors have towards Christians that just average Christians have is figuring out like this stuff's important, but I'm also just trying to figure out like this world is insane and I'm trying to figure out the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I think that's where, you know, the one good thing, I, I mean, I, there's a lot of good things I'd say that came out of the tradition that you and I kind of came out of is, you know, that emphasis on the word of God, on teaching the word, on being just teachers, not preachers, you yeah. know, not just, I mean, being teachers, but not just preachers, you know, where we really, you know, try to make things practical, try to take these big theological things and help people understand. It's like, listen, this is not just some disconnected ivory tower thing. This is something that does affect you and your life and how you relate to God, how you relate to your family, how you relate to, you know, the world around you. And, and I think you are right. And, you know, that is something that we need to really focus on, you know, and, 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 and the young zeal and arrogance that comes out of Bible college. Yeah. It's like there, there needs to be that testing time. And this is also why it's like, I I'm very cynical. My wife and I, we've talked about this a lot, why I'm so cynical about, especially kind of the generation we're in where, you know, remember you and I, our generation was supposed to change the world. We were yeah. the ones who were supposed to evangelize the entire world. And we were pushing on that. And I've reached that point so much. It's like, man, we need to stop putting that weight on young people. Young people need to recognize, Hey, learn, slow down, put yourself under good mentors, good disciplers, and take time before you take the helm of the ship. Because mm-hmm. If not, you're going to crash it. And we've seen that happen a lot. I mean, think about a lot of the churches and ministries and things that we saw explode that were kind of planted in the 90s and 2000s that no longer exist anymore. And it's because of young, unqualified leaders uh, who had a lot of big ideas and charismatic personalities, but they didn't have the the tempering that comes with time, uh, you know, to kind of keep them in line. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think about longevity far more than I used to. Yeah. Um, and and growing up in a group of churches that was a church planting group of churches, I think about longevity in the reality family of churches. They 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 I've heard them say they want to plant as few churches as they possibly can while being faithful to what God's called them to do. And what they mean by that is like we're not looking to for quantity, we're looking for quality. Mm-hmm. And and they have longevity in their church plants. They their church plants have generally succeeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think they've had like they've had an, a staggering success rate in longevity, ten years or more, mm-hmm. and um, that's something I think about a lot. I actually bring them up a lot in our in meetings in our my current group of churches because we'll talk about church planting. It's like guys, I'd rather we just plant one church in the next five years and have it be a church that lasts for the next fifty years. Let's let's do that. Yeah, um, and um, and we have a church plant going about ten minutes away from us, and it's doing well, I want to see it live past yeah. five years from now. Um, and the, cause the, the, the thing that we talks about with church planting is that established churches, they last a lot longer than you think they will. And you could have a church kind of be kind of sleepy and dormant for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And, and in that time, there's like five church plant attempts that all peter out. And then after kind of a sleepy season, that church just kind of 
It's like a, a, a smoldering uh, coal. It rekindles and the fire comes back up and there's stuff happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think there's something to that for sure. And the reason I don't, I just, should just say for the podcast, the reason I, I've been really specific about not mentioning the group of churches that we were both part of is partly because the one of the biggest and most influential churches in the Portland area is not part of that group, but came out of that group. And there is one of those churches just down the hill from us. And there's a baggage that comes to that. People hear that you, you were from that group and they go, Oh, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to be seen as either endorsing nor disparaging the church down the road from us. Mm -hmm. There are things that I think they're doing really well. They have a lot of things that I, I don't agree with. Um, They probably think that I'm some kind of woke whack job. I, I mean, I don't know how many times, I've been called woke from people in that group. And it's like, you don't know what woke is if you think I'm, I'm woke. But okay. <laughs> well, woke is an often overused and Ill, Ill, poorly defined term. I often say that. I mean, shoot, I'm accused of being liberal, or at least I used to be accused of being liberal. I mean, just imagine that for, Adam, for a moment, Adam. Me have been yeah. attacked as being liberal, you know? I mean, sure. And I've had to, when I discuss certain issues, you know, uh, kind of defend my conservatism, which is like, for crying out loud, anybody who's looking at my desk and stuff, I got dead animals all over the place. I'm as conservative redneck as it comes. But yeah. But no, I, well, yeah. I don't think people, but I just don't think like, I don't think those terms are particularly helpful anymore because like, they don't mean anything. They're just derogatory. (laughs) One of the most conservative, you know, one of the most generally conservative people I know is an, is a, is a big believer in universal basic income, which is a socialist idea. Right. Mm -hmm. So on like almost everything else, he's like right wing, except for he believes in universal basic income and he's open to universal healthcare. Mm -hmm. These are two very socialist ideas but he's not bound by a previous generation's view of right or left he's just this is what i think Mm -hmm. and and i think that there's something to that where if we can get past these ideas um although i mean this sunday i'm gonna bash both right and left it's interesting to me that uh chapter two in revelation starts with ephesus which would be easily identified as a evangelical church yeah, a church that's right. big on yep. doctrine, a church that's big on, you know, keeping keeping out bad teachers and all that stuff. And they're also unloving jerks. <laughs> and then the, you know, it ends with, um, is it Tyra Tyra? I was reading this last night. Um, but they're, they are um, very loving and they're also uh, super permissive on sin and, you know. Yep. <laughs> and I, I was talking to a... a, a, a a neighbor recently and they were saying about like how all the problems in the evangelical church. And I was like, yep. And he's like, and I was like, yeah, but there's this and this, he's like, yeah, and there's this and this. And he's like, but I said, you know, there's problems in the progressive church too. Well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, there's moral compromise and there's, and he's like, Oh, cause he doesn't want to call that out the same as he wants to call out the, the problems within, you know, the right wing side of the church. Yeah. And, and I think Jesus wants to call out everybody's everybody's yeah yeah you know it's funny there's a thing i've often said to our church and our congregation and friends and family when we talk about like these issues you know like the racism thing that we've mentioned a number of times and other things is the reason why we have so many of these problems now is because we who are right-wing evangelical Christians did not step up and do what we were supposed to do back then. And so now you got these other groups who want nothing to do with Christianity stepping up and, you know, grab, taking the reins to try to fix it. And that's why we see so many of the messes we got is because we failed, you know, we utterly failed. And we as right-wing Christians need to own up to that. Yeah. And, and, and there has been as much as I think 
like I think a lot of the big church words that that theologians use, uh, the average Christian church church person doesn't need to care about. Mm-hmm. I also think it doesn't help us to be uninformed or ignorant. So like yeah. less than 10 years before he founded the moral majority, mm-hmm. Jerry Falwell was campaigning against desegregation. He was campaigning for segregation mm-hmm. and he never publicly repented of it. Never. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing when we say, why is it you're like, you're saying, why is there such an issue? Because we never, we never held Falwell and others to account for their their racist positions. Yeah. And 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 they they never were held account for it. And so th- there's this these things that since we never dealt with it, another group said, well, we're going to deal with it. And and well, you have all these problems. Yeah, sure, but they're dealing with a problem that we didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. So I just I I, I kind of look at it and say, like, uh, you know, there, there's there's so many things where if Jesus were to walk into any of our churches, you know, uh, he would say, hey, this is what uh, this is what you're doing. I like this, but this is what I have against you. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's one of the great shames of of the churches, the dispensational churches I knew that taught that chapters two and three was about a church history lesson because they never wanted to get too close to their own themselves. Mm, what would yeah. Jesus say to our church? Yep. Because that's where it gets uncomfortable. It's easy to have the big history lesson and and uh, say good things about the uh, the persecuted church and say bad things about the Catholics and say say bad things about whichever modern group you don't like. And it's a lot harder to like say, what would Jesus say to us? Yeah. And, and what would he what would he push back towards us? And that's the uh, that's the real sticking point to me. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And it's very, very true. <laughs> Well, hey, we are coming up on like an hour and 40 minutes, and I asked you for an hour. So yep. um, I, I appreciate the time. I mean, the podcast, this podcast is long form. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people are welcome to listen to it in chunks. But uh, it, I want to I give you the floor to kind of any, anything from this conversation that you, you want to come back to or, or close on. I want to give you the, the last word. I mean, I, I think the one thing, you know, that I'd like to encourage people in, and this is actually a, a big part of my heart is, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you having this conversation, inviting me on to have this conversation as a talk, you know, because you and I, I mean, you know, we've had our disagreements over time online when we we're talking about different things like, you know, eschatology and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we as Christians have to do a lot, be a lot better at is having these kinds of conversations. You know, I and this is something I've I've always had this heart. And especially being down here, I don't have anybody who's really of my tribe in my mm-hmm. area. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of an anomaly, doctrinally, uh, culturally, I mean, everything like that. I mean, I really am. And so I've had to learn to really forge relationships with Christians outside of my circles, outside of my uh, different leanings and perspectives on things, and to learn to kind of be able to look past, you know, these areas of disagreement, where at the same time, having good, honest, productive discussions um, over things where we do disagree to make sure that we're not talking past each other or straw manning each other, you know, in these really important issues. And so um, I just want to say, I, I, you know, I appreciate this conversation. I, I appreciate the tone of this conversation, you know, because uh, I think the church needs to have a lot more of these, especially, um, you know, as we're just getting so much more connected as a people, you know, we cannot escape what's going on in the rural American rural churches anymore, because it's on the news. And we can't escape what's going on in the urban world, you know, because we're all constantly having to uh, go back and forth and see these things happening. And we need to get away from the cessationalism of our culture that wants to just get 
um, absolutely frustrated and demonize and dehumanize the other side when we really need to be focusing on those are people creating the image of God. And maybe the thing they're yelling about, they might have a point. I might disagree with some of their ideas, disagree with some of their cultural ideas. But before I cast a judgment on them, I need to make sure I can say I understand before I say I disagree. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, now, if uh, if people want to, you've mentioned that you have some podcasts or, uh, you know, if, if people want to check out what you're doing, where could they where could they check out where they could they find out about you, your church, all that? Yeah, so if you'd be interested in any of the discussions I've had for anybody who's listening, uh, you can go to YouTube, look up Jack Coltis, um, my YouTube channel there, and I have discussions with various different theologians over um, you know, issues of salvation, or what we call soteriology, with uh, Calvinists, Molinists, Arminians. Uh, so if you're really wanting to get into that kind of stuff, hey, what do these different guys believe? I have conversations uh, with uh, some leading scholars in those fields, some on eschatology, um, I have some discussions with Sam Storms on, on millennialism and what is that. And especially for anybody who comes out of like Adam, you're an I background, I'd encourage them to go listen to that conversation so that they have a real understanding of what that perspective believes and um, other different things where I've covered different uh, cult groups and things like that. So I'd encourage you to go check that out at my YouTube channel. Um, that's just uh, Jack Coltis on YouTube. And then if any of you guys are interested in uh, following any of our sermons, you can find audio for those at parkgrovechristianchurch.com. That's the church I pastor, or you can even uh, follow our Facebook page where we put up videos of our sermons every week. Yeah, because of the time difference, I'm usually um, doing final like printouts of, of music charts and, and sermon notes uh, as you guys are starting. So I, I actually often watch a little of the beginning of your service. It never gets to your sermon, but I, I usually watch a little of the beginning Yeah, uh, every, every few weeks. Get get a taste of that traditional worship, and then my poor attempt at leading contemporary worship. <laughs> well, you know, we're just in different parts of the world. So, uh, hey, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. And uh, so I want to say uh, thanks to everybody that's been listening. Uh, Talk About Anything podcast is a long-form podcast that gets released intermittently uh, in between our other podcasts, the uh, 20-Minute Bible Study Starting Points and our Sunday morning streams. And uh, if you want more information, you can check out faithonhill.com or follow us at Faith on Hill on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate you too, Adam.